Welcome to the Business of Primary Care podcast, where we discuss the latest news, trends, and practices in primary care. Our community is full of healthcare's best. From physicians to CEOs, you will hear from brilliant minds on topics ranging from value-based care to the latest in healthcare tech. Welcome back to this week's episode of the Business of Primary Care podcast. During our last episode, we talked with Dr. Clive Fields and Dr. Kevin Bond, the CMOs of Village MD and Walgreens. We chatted about the benefits of collaboration in healthcare, the fruits of their partnership, and the change to an outcome-based reimbursement model. And this week, we are continuing the conversation on value-based care with Dr. John Hart, as he joins our host, Katila Farley, for today's discussion. Katila is a registered nurse and experienced healthcare executive. Her professional experience includes 18 plus years in healthcare, and she currently serves as the chief customer officer at Affirm Health. Dr. John Hart currently works as the medical director at CareSource and has an impressive knowledge in all things value-based care. This episode is full of very practical insights on how to make the switch to a value-based care model. To begin the discussion, Dr. Hart shares a bit about his career in healthcare and what led him to where he is today. So I'm a family doc by training, uh, residency trained, board certified, was a rural family medicine doctor for almost a decade, uh, switched over to do emergency medicine for, again, almost a decade and was a hospitalist for a couple of years before jumping completely behind the desk uh, to be a healthcare administrator first, six years as CMO of a health plan, uh, and then leading value-based care uh, operations and strategy for a health system, and then for a, a large uh, physician group, uh, both of those in Florida. So that's who I am in a nutshell. I'm curious, um, what tools do you think are are required for a provider to really start to focus in the value-based care and population health world? It could be really simple things such as incentive programs, but I'm just kind of curious if you have some like absolute go-tos for success in, in the world of fee-for-service versus value-based care. Yeah, no, it, it's interesting because um, I, I think if you set yourself up well for value-based care, you actually, the, the principles and workflows that uh, align with value-based care principles improve the work that's being done in a fee-for-service world. The opposite is not true because you can set up to be uh, a churn and burn um, patient mill uh, and, and really not create any value. Uh, so to me, I think the very first tool that needs to be in the toolbox is uh, a desire and a willingness to change workflows to align with what can I do for this patient that is going to create value? And by that, I mean improve quality, which is outcomes, prevention, early identification, access, uh, all those things, or decrease cost or make at least cost, get it appropriate. And that's not only the cost of what I'm doing, but the cost downstream of what's happening. And all the while improving experience of that patient through appropriate communication, through a relationship with them, helping them feel cared for because a cared for patient is one that's engaged and uh, they can then help in uh, optimizing their health and well-being because that then leads to decreased costs. So 
That's, a, that's just conceptually where you need to get your mind so that then it's not a matter of how many people, how many 99213s and 214s can I run through the office today as much as what does Mrs. Jones need today to help her continue on her path of health and well-being, uh, whether it's chronic disease management today and, and moving forward or some preventive health measures, or I need to check some metrics on her, uh, her blood pressure or hemoglobin A1C. Um, I need to help her with the uh, advanced care planning uh, just in case something were to happen. What are the things that need to happen today to, to make that? And so I, I think the basic tools that everybody needs, because could tell this is, these are all concepts that people were talking about in the 70s and 80s and early 90s with HMOs. The problem was we didn't have electronic medical records. We didn't have uh, the access to data and the ability to uh, aggregate, manipulate, and analyze that data to find the pearls and the nuggets of gold uh, to, to then apply to change things. We have that now. Um, Value-based care in 2023 on a paper uh, medical record is not possible. So the first thing you need is, a, is an electronic medical record that uh, can catalog everything that you do, you need to do, and you will need to do for that patient uh, to keep them as healthy as possible. Then I think the physician in the room doesn't necessarily need uh, the data of how their patients are doing, you know, what their their cost and use metrics like ED per thousand and inpatient per thousand. They, he, doesn't, he or she doesn't need that in the room at the time, but you need to know what those things are. So you need the, the ability to aggregate data and analyze data in such a way or have somebody do it for you in such a way that you can find where um, the roadblocks are in how you're delivering care so you can make things better so that you can you can appropriately code somebody's burden of illness so that you can appropriately get them uh, to, you know, the eye exam and their diabetes that they need or that uh, you can know where their blood pressure is at any given time. So I would say just those two are probably the basics. And then from there, it's a matter of having somebody that, that can tabulate all that information on each patient as that patient's coming in uh, for a visit so that the person checking Mrs. Jones in at the front desk, the, the nurse or MA that takes her back to the room and the doctor all know what needs to happen for Mrs. Jones today to get the, the most out of that visit in terms of uh, how you're going to positively impact your health and well-being. So that's some people call that a daily huddle or a huddle tool or um, something, but somebody needs to spend some time looking at the patients ahead of time. So that's a rambly long answer. Uh, but I think there's so many specific tools out there that meet different people's needs in different ways. And that's fine. I think the, the big takeaways are adjust your workflows, have uh, documentation electronically so that you know what has happened, what's happening today and what needs to happen. Know your data so that you know what your outcomes are, both medically as well as financially and utilization-wise, and then uh, have that daily or pre-daily strategic meeting with, with that chart to know what needs to happen. So, and I love that you mention um, 
the daily strategic thing in talking with different um, folks, right, from medical students to long-term experienced physicians to brand new experiences coming into the workforce, it's interesting that concept of that strategic meeting. And and like you said, um, in the moment of care, the provider doesn't have time to go through all that documentation. So, you know, taking time to establish whether it's true um, pre-visit planning, whether it's a team that's doing that, whether it's your own personal medical assistant. Tell me, um, in your experience in talking with different providers, where do you see the most success? So I've seen it work really well two ways. I've seen it work a whole lot of different ways, but it seemed to work the best in, in two different ways. And, and the, the differences are the resources available uh, to the, the practice that was doing it. The first is there's a, a large department of, of folks dedicated to nothing other than pre-visit chart scrubs. So they'll look at the schedule for next week and then look at all the patients that are coming in and at each individual patient find out, are there any HEDIS uh, measures that haven't been closed on, that, on this patient for this year? Um, are there any uh, open uh, coding uh, issues for appropriate coding to capture the true burden of illness of that patient? Are there uh, just in general any sort of uh, medical follow-up tests that need to be ordered on this patient beforehand? And then they will tabulate all that and send it to the, uh, the office staff, and then the office staff will, will work with that. I have seen that done uh, electronically as well, where then it populates into the patient's chart, but that's not as common. And, and I'm not sure that it's as helpful as having a whole list of the day, frankly, because then you you don't necessarily have to open every patient. The other way and sort of the, the down and dirty way that I've seen work really well is um, to have either the, the EMR or, or some sort of platform that automatically puts a paper together, a, a, a document together uh, that's in the EMR that um, says, these are the patients coming in. These are the things, this is the reason they're coming in. They need these HEDIS measures closed. Mr. Smith hasn't had an AWV, consider either scheduling one or flipping this visit to an AWV. And, and laying it out in a schedule format so that the MA, uh, preferably, or the, or the nurse that is, is the one that's in charge of bringing the patient back and rooming the patient, gets familiar with what needs to be done on that patient. Because they can also then put some pre-orders in. If somebody's due for a mammogram, they can put that pre-order in and the doc can, can then sign off on it. If uh, they have coronary artery disease and they're not on a statin drug, a prescription uh, can be put in the chart flagged for the doc. So um, that's, that's a more automated way to do it. Uh, I, I think in terms of a, a, a software platform that can do that, it's probably cheaper then, uh, and some EMRs will do it uh, to a certain extent, but that's probably cheaper than having a whole department. But the, the group I was talking about with the whole department had 600 plus providers and they did this for the entire uh, organization. So I, 
somewhere in between there, I think works really well. But I think I I think it it needs to start in the hands of the person that's going to put that patient in the room. If the doc wants to get involved in that in the morning before they see patients, that's fine. That's great. They can do that. They'll have more advanced warning of what's happening, but they don't necessarily need to because it can be put into the EMR in such a way that the physician knows, oh, my EMA is prompting me about this. So I'm going to ask Mr. Smith about this and and they can, can work that way. Let's take a moment and take a closer look at pre-visit planning. The American Medical Association estimates that pre-visit planning can save 30 minutes per day of physician and office staff time. Additionally, they estimate that on average, a clinic could save $26,400 a year per physician when pre-visit planning is done effectively. So what is it and how do you get started? Pre-visit planning is a strategy used to maximize the benefits of a healthcare visit with extra prep, a focus on the appointment, and creating a very specific patient care plan. Traditionally, a patient's medical care for an issue begins at an appointment, but patient care can begin before your time together and should extend past the current visit. Pre-visit planning allows providers to think about someone's care as a continuum rather than as isolated incidents. So we think of a healthcare visit in three major stages. The first is the preparation prior to the appointment. So this could be things like collecting patient information, collecting information about the goals of the appointment, sending appointment reminders, reviewing patient history and conducting any needed lab tests. Then the second is the intentional assessment during the actual appointment, which provides direct care, developing a care plan, and scheduling anything needed for proper follow-up, which would include tests and or other appointments. And then the third is the action plan after the appointment with follow-up communication about labs and any other needed appointments. We like pre-visit planning because it's a practical way to begin the transition to more of a value-based care model. The American Medical Association has some practical breakdowns of the process, and they recommend 10 steps for implementing pre-visit planning. Number one is reappoint the patient after the visit. Number two, use a visit planner checklist to arrange the next appointment. Number three, arrange for laboratory tests to be completed before the next visit. Number four, perform visit preparations. Number five, use a visit prep checklist to identify gaps in care. Six, send patient appointment reminders. Number seven, a pre-visit phone call or email. Eight, a preclinical team huddle. Nine, a pre-appointment questionnaire. And 10, hand off the patient to the physician. We've put together a few articles on pre-visit planning on our website and we'll link some resources on the show notes. Because whether you add additional staff or implement some helpful pre-visit planning technology, this shift can fundamentally change the way you approach care. So let's get back to the discussion. Katila is wondering what John Hart has observed in value-based care versus fee-for-service clinics. I wouldn't say there's so much a difference as much as the the practices that are mature in value-based care, uh, for the most part, Katila, still spend a lot of time in the fee-for-service world. And uh, there are some practices out there that strictly do at-risk patients, meaning um, they, they go at risk for premium with a, with like a Medicare Advantage plan. That's the only patients they'll see. That, that exists out there, certainly. And that's what we hear a lot about. 
But the other, there's a large contingent of group practices that are successful in value-based care and only half of their patients are in at-risk contracts. And so what they do, a lot of the things that they do um, to improve, let's and let's just take access for one thing. If you improve access for your patients in value-based contracts, um, you uh, decrease the likelihood that they're going to go to the emergency department, which decreases the likelihood that they're going to be admitted as an inpatient, which um, means two things. One, it means they're healthier because they, they never got sick enough. They never decompensated enough to need to go into the hospital. And number two, their cost of care is much lower because they never went into the hospital, either in the emergency department or into a bed on a floor. The more ways you can get patients uh, the ability to access their physicians and their providers and to get the care they need, the better off you're going to be. So that means, um, you know, the, the very first thing, and this is what we would have done 20 years ago, is just uh, increase your office hours. Okay, so we're going to have weekend hours and such like that. Yeah, I mean, you can do that. But in 2023, you don't have to do that. Some things just need to be handled with asynchronous contact, meaning uh, through a, a secure portal or secure SMS texting or, or email uh, to and allowing a patient to be able to ask a question of, now was that 40 milligrams of Lasix or 400 milligrams of Lasix that you wanted me to take um, before they end up taking the wrong dose of something and, and causing a problem getting in the hospital? Beyond that, then there's the whole telehealth option. Uh, and, and telehealth opens up so many opportunities because uh, I worked with a practice that had a virtual walk-in clinic. So in addition to having the PCPs and uh, some other specialists doing um, telemedicine visits, they had uh, a virtual walk-in so that it wasn't brick and mortar. The doc was uh, somewhere else. Uh, they, they did it um, uh, all via telemedicine. They also had brick and mortar walk-in clinics. I think that's another option too. And that, that gets to the increased uh, physical um, presence uh, hours. You know, then uh, there's a whole notion of, of an after hours call system. So let me, before I go to that, let me just say this, all of what I just said, at least for now, uh, until they remove all the, the COVID emergency rules, if they don't fully change the telehealth rule, uh, telemedicine rule, all of those things also feed your fee-for-service revenue. Every one of those, a brick and mortar uh, walk-in clinic, a telemedicine practice, a telemed you know, a virtual walk-in clinic through telemedicine, the patient portal things and such, they don't necessarily, I mean, you can bill for them in some instances, but to me, it, it replaces the, what, you know, back in 1993, when I started practice, was telephone medicine. And people called the office, people answered the phone, people got me on the phone, we had conversations or they gave me messages. Uh, a lot of times it ended up being asynchronous, even though the patient was on the phone the whole time, because the front desk would tell the nurse that this patient needed something or other, they would knock on the door, ask me, I'd give them an answer and off it would go. But to be able to do that electronically, uh, you know, makes a, a big difference there. So then on the other piece with after hours call, you know, it used to be that the doctors took call for their own patients and they had, you know, they, they had conversation. They could uh, stave some things off till the morning or they could say, you know what, you need to get to the hospital right away. 
I think a lot of practices don't do as good a job as they could in terms of fielding patient-initiated contact, and that is especially true after hours. And I'm not even talking about 2 in the morning. I'm talking about 7 at night or 6.30 at night. The ability to have uh, some triage done and then potentially a telehealth visit with an advanced provider or a physician, if, if, if that's available, that can make a big difference in ED utilization uh, and, frankly, can capture revenue from a fee-for-service side, too. You know, there are some practices as well that have that kind of setup, and they'll even do a telemedicine visit. And the person doing the telemedicine visit really would, would like to have somebody get eyes and hands on that patient. And they'll send somebody out like Dispatch Health or MediDrive or somebody like that to the home, and they'll evaluate the patient on a non-emergent basis. Um, and and then get information back to the physician or the provider, and then they can do things from there. Again, all of those things, most of those things are billable from a fee-for-service standpoint, but the reality is the return on investment. If So if I'm at full risk, I'm thinking, well, I'm just taking one pocket, money out of one pocket and put it in into the other. It's, it's my money that I'm spending here. But if, if that money does get spent on those types of services, the return on that investment in terms of the value you create through improved outcomes by improving your access actually decreases your cost and gives the patient a better experience. And frankly, the patients who know that they can get a hold of somebody at two in the morning typically don't get a hold of somebody at two in the morning. Absolutely. One of the things that's jumping out at me as well is from the patient's perspective, right? That patient education moment of knowing how to use the portal or knowing the right phone number to call. What, in your experience, where do you see practices really shine? What do they do special to really grow that patient engagement in the portals and in in the behavior of, you know, calling that local practice before maybe taking it that next step straight to the ER? Any, any, great wins you've seen out there in the market? Yeah, actually, uh, one of them uh, approached it just like a new employee onboarding. I mean, you know, so uh, if you join a company and, you know, they all have their own software platforms and, you know, we, we do all our messaging through this and you get your emails through here. And if you need to access this, so you click on that and let's help you get that. We're going to give you your passwords and give you access. You know, we do that for our employees so that they can communicate with each other and with the organization and make it happen. And this one practice basically had an onboarding, um, you know, they, they asked people to plan for an extra half hour in their first visit because they, and they would onboard them on how to use all the different access points of the practice. Now, none of that works if you don't respond to it as the, as the physician group, meaning if somebody sends an electronic message and it still takes two days to get an answer, well, you haven't really gained anything. Investing in the people who can take the time to be available for those patients, at least let them know you're getting them the answer that they need. That goes a long way then to get sort of that positive reinforcement uh, so that people learn that, okay, yeah, this is the best way. The best way to get a medication refill, and, and this is personal experience with my physician, uh, my personal physician, the best way to get a medication refill is to send a request through the portal and within a half hour that it's in at the pharmacy. 
Uh, they, you know, they just, they really pay attention to that and they make that happen. So I don't call them for medicine refills. So they freed up their phones uh, for those sort of issues because they were, they, they set up the system and then used it appropriately by being responsive. Uh, Cause I think too often in medicine as in a lot of different uh, industries, but you know, we tend to we tend to think about patient engagement as our outreach to patients, and we start to become basically spam factories and robocallers that are totally non-responsive to patients initiating the contact. And we have to remember that that communication, which I think communication impacts quality as well as experience, that that communication has to be bi-directional, and we need you know if if we're going to have an impact on a patient's health and well-being that then leads to decreased cost of their care, um, which feeds our value-based care revenue, we have to be uh, responsive to the needs that they have and let them know that that relationship exists because it it truly is. It's a longitudinal relationship, not episodic. Uh, Because in the old days, it truly was episodic. You see Mrs. Jones, you tell her what's wrong, you give her pills, and send her on her way, you send a building insurance. Well, the next day she's not any better or she's having a side effect. Well, you bring her back in, do the same thing, drop another bill. Uh, and you just you know churn and burn that way. But uh, that's not the case in value-based care medicine because uh, part of that mindset is not treating Mrs. Jones and the MAs and the nurses and the physicians uh, as pieces, the patients as as widgets and the the healthcare team as cogs in the machine, uh, you're you're valuing them as human beings uh, and you want them to to do better. Uh, so it's it's not just a matter of of dropping a new bill because keeping Mrs. Jones healthy is what drives your your revenue. Absolutely, and I think it all impacts the patient experience again which was your first two basic uh, agenda items which was access and experience and what an incredible experience to be welcomed to a practice and really shown how to maneuver i think when we teach patients how to do it and then like you said provide the experience then you have a pretty well old machine to be able to continue to layer on additional systems you can find the people too that aren't going to be able to do it. And that those are just the people you're going to have to talk to on the phone. But, you know, so you can, but you can identify that up front. Absolutely. And then you're freeing up the staff to really work with those people at their level. Right. So it's just a win, win, and win. We talk a lot about quality healthcare on this podcast and generally in the healthcare space. During this episode, Dr. John Hart is walking us through very practical ways for us to give quality care to our patients. But let's take a minute to zoom out. What exactly is quality care? The World Health Organization observes that there's a growing acknowledgement that quality health service should include the following. The first, effective, providing evidence-based healthcare services to those who need them. That's the basic level. Safety, must be safe, avoiding harm to people for whom the care is intended and people-centered, providing care that responds to individual preferences, needs, and values, truly listening to the people who need care. And to realize the benefits of quality healthcare, health services must be the following. Timely, we've got to reduce waiting times and harmful delays. 
like as John Hart talks about, taking calls and doing post-visit follow-ups. It must be equitable, providing care that does not vary in quality on account of gender, ethnicity, geographic location, and socioeconomic status. It also needs to be integrated. We've got to provide care that makes available the full range of healthcare services throughout the entire life course. And then lastly, and perhaps most importantly, it must be efficient. We have to maximize the benefit of available resource and avoid waste. We spend a lot of time talking about the efficiency part of this because healthcare is a business. And in order for it to operate effectively as a business, money has to be paid for quality. Thus the shift to value-based care models. Paying for quality is obviously nuanced because it's hard to measure despite all of our efforts to do so. The World Health Organization boils it down to this. In order for us to truly have quality healthcare, the need for action across multiple stakeholders at all health system levels is required in order for this change to truly happen. The provision of quality services requires good governance, a skilled and competent health workforce that is supported and motivated, financing mechanisms that enable and encourage that quality care, and also good information systems. All of that is easier said than done. Thankfully, we have leaders like Dr. John Hart leading the charge forward to better systems and practical tools. So let's dive back into the conversation with a question from Katila. Any thoughts on the, the, the impact three, five years from now and what we expect to see? I, I know Medicare has a, has a goal in mind of 2030 to really have everybody utilizing these value-based care programs, but from somebody that's really out there talking to multiple practices around the country, what do you think? Um, I'm not asking you to be a fortune teller, but just do you, do you see um, a certain direction that you think we'll be heading in in the next three to five years? Well, unfortunately, yeah, <laughs> I do think there's a, there's a direction I'm not happy with that I think we're going to be heading into. And it gets, it gets to the, the point you just made about if value-based care is done in a cherry-picking fashion, then uh, there's a lot of people that get left behind. You know, I, I think you know some of the good news out there is that there are there are group practices that focus solely on you know the high risk, uh, low income um, patients. But there's also some low income patients that aren't high risk, and and are they going to get left behind? A lot of the value-based care programs have focused on Medicare patients, uh, but what about the 45-year-old um, that's not on, on Medicare uh, and uh, may or may not be on Medicaid? You know, one of the things that we were trying to do with the health system I was working at was take all the value-based care framework that we had built on some of these other programs and apply them to the uninsured uh, because it was a public hospital system. I left before that got too much traction, uh, but it was it was a difficult sell um, anyway. But I think hospitals and health systems are having a hard time understanding the concept. And this is generally speaking, there's there's the exceptions. There's the Intermountains, there's the Geisingers, uh, to a certain extent, SSM in, in St. Louis. For the most part, health systems are having a hard time understanding and getting on with the concepts of value-based care because they're so stuck in the heads and beds mentality of I got to keep my beds filled up and my ORs full. Um, and certainly that's kind of how they're built. They're brick and mortar. Um, they build based on traffic. 
Um, but it makes it hard for them to understand and to really align their heads with value-based care concepts. Then you have payers uh, who, um, you know, five years ago, I would have said, no, you know what, physicians need to be the leaders in, in value-based care. I don't think, I don't think payers can do it. Well, I think the United's and the Aetna's and the Humana's have proven me wrong on that uh, by buying docs. And, and since they're at risk for that premium dollar, they're figuring out ways uh, to be able to deliver care uh, with the highest quality and the most appropriate cost. So you have those two polar opposites, frankly. Um, and then in the middle are physicians. And I think small physician groups, solo practices are going to struggle and already are struggling. I think large group practices are going to struggle. The um, the resources that are necessary to uh, to make some of the changes, uh, especially if you if you don't have a data system, if your EMR is a mess, you have to find capital. And so you either go to private equity, or you go you sell yourself to a health system, or you sell yourself to a payer. I don't see that as probably serving best serving the needs of the people in rural areas or in areas where there's there's not a lot of, um, you know, say Medicare population. Uh, so I do think that that's a big challenge that we need to face head on. And that is to not leave those areas behind and find ways to create value there because you still can uh, just like you can in employer plans, like you can in commercial health plans. You can even do it in a marketplace plan with the thin of margins as they have, but it takes more work. It takes more creativity. You can't just sit back and, and throw some data at the wall. Uh, and I, I think we need to do the hard work of figuring out how to make that happen, or we will, we will put people who are not in metropolitan areas at risk for their health because of an accident. At the end of every episode, we like to ask some rapid fire questions. Today, we had time for just one. What is one big scary dream you have for yourself or for the industry? Yeah, so near future, talking about the next two to five years, what would be really cool is if some of the the successes that we've had in applying value-based care principles to primary care, if we could start applying those to um, other specialties in a, in a more meaningful way than what we've already done. And um, I'll explain, because I think there's a lot of specialty practices that are set up quite well for value-based care that are not necessarily going down that path because nobody's advising them to go down that path. It's still run the patients through how many, what kind of traffic can you get through your office to then get through for your procedures and things like that. All the while, um, the primary care docs are trying to limit downstream uh, medical expenses. If we can get to where we can apply value-based principles to specialists and assign specific contribution of that specialist to the cost of care of attributed patients to then truly allow them to uh, partake in the shared savings that comes from efficiencies of care and lack of duplication of services and quality outcomes and access, then I think we're going to make a big impact uh, on it. Because right now we've we've got people uh, with misaligned um, uh, incentives and priorities. 
So that would be the one big thing. The, the second scary piece, uh, and it goes back to what I was saying about, um, right, you know, right now with private with physicians and physician groups, uh, there seems to be only three options for them. Um, private equity, health system, or a payer. And wouldn't it be great if physicians actually could have a fourth option that was physician-led? And, and maybe that's sort of the private equity piece where it's actually physician private equity that's backing these things, uh, these practices that are doing things in a better, uh, more efficient, effective way uh, to deliver care. Uh, I would just like to see that option out there available because the scary part for me is that what's if we follow our current trajectory, there's going to be three physician group practices in the United States, one with United Healthcare, one with CVS Aetna, and one with Humana. And they're going to be the ones driving care instead of physicians driving care. But with that said, it's partly because physicians aren't taking the bull by the horns and, and getting out there and, and doing it on our own and making it happen. So lots of scariness there. Thank you for listening to the Business of Primary Care podcast. We are so honored that you've chosen to be a part of this community. In a world where traditional primary care must adapt, evolve, and change to thrive, we believe community, supportive resources, and education are essential. And we're committed to finding answers and a better way forward. You can expect us to provide you with the latest news, trends, and best practices so that you can win in the business of primary care. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to our newsletter at businessofprimarycare.com and be sure to follow us on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe to get new episodes wherever you like to listen. Also, if you'd like to connect with Katila Farley or Dr. John Hart, we've added their LinkedIn's in the show notes. 